Man, it's good to see you today. If you're a guest, we're glad you're here. I'm David. I'm the pastor. Personally, want to welcome you. Tell you anytime we got something going on you want to come to, come on. We, we'd love to have you. Uh, today, we're finishing up a study in First uh, Peter, being a believer in a non-believing culture, because that's kind of where we are today in the culture. It's more and more becoming kind of a non-believing culture, and First Peter really deals with that. Even though we're bringing this series to a conclusion today, on the last Friday of this month, July 26th, uh, from 6.30 to 10, we're doing what we call a deep fry, deep study on a Friday night, it'll be a First Peter. So I'm going to go through all the First Peter and all the stuff we missed. I'll cover that in pretty good detail. So you're all invited to come to that as well. Uh, First Peter is simply about this. Being a believer in a non-believing culture requires a commitment to Jesus that surpasses any commitment of any person who's not a follower of Christ. It's just that simple. If you're going to live in a culture like ours, then you have to have a commitment to Jesus that surpasses any commitment of any person who is not what we would call a follower of Christ. Now, and, and you come to First Peter, and I've set this out in every message, the context, but I want to do it again because some of you are here for the first time. Peter writes right around 64 AD. Uh, in 64 AD, Nero begins a persecution. Nero, the emperor of Rome, begins a persecution that's systematic, and it's the official state sponsors for persecution of Christians starting in Rome. Peter probably writes right before that. Uh, and he's writing, though, to people who are persecuted because persecution has always been around the Christian faith. And most likely he is writing to Christians in Asia Minor, what we would call Turkey today. Uh, those folks experienced lots of types of persecutions. They had lots of books written to them. The book of Revelation uh, is actually, John says, it's written to seven churches in Asia Minor. He names them. And so these people experienced persecution for a great deal of time uh, in, in their experience as followers of Christ. And so he writes, but when Peter writes, it's different than that you and I could ever imagine writing. And uh, He's a unique person because he writes with an authority that no one else really had because he was as close to Jesus as anybody. I mean, John had it. He was close to Christ, but not like being Peter was it. Uh, Peter, James, and John were the closest Peter of all, and so he writes with an authority. He writes with an authenticity because Peter experienced suffering. He was persecuted. He was beaten, and Nero would eventually put him to death. So he understood what he was writing about. And so he writes to us in a way that can influence us today. He wrote to them, but when we read the letter, it influences us today. And when you come to the fifth chapter of First Peter, Peter is winding everything down. In fact, the part we have really is the last kind of, you know, section of Scripture that deals with issues. The rest of it kind of is a doxology and, and some closing remarks. And he begins chapter 5 by talking about to elders, to the leadership of the church. He'd be talking to me about shepherding the congregation and our responsibilities. And the idea of the motif of shepherding is an important one in Scripture. Because it comes from Christ himself. In John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. He talks about his sheep, uh, knowing him. He knows them. They listen to his voice. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, Peter even says this about uh, the chief shepherd. Uh, we're in persevering faith. That's the message. You know, I kind of got ahead of myself, didn't I? Did I miss you guys up in the back? I'm just blowing and going through this last message. So I'm shaking. So I'm going to go back and fix the part that I messed up. Okay, we're going to read the passage, all right? We'll do that. So no, no, sometimes when it looks like I don't ever mess up, I actually mess up. So everybody on staff this week gets to tell me, hey, you messed up. And then I'll, you know, they'll stop that after that. But here's the thing. So I'm going to read the scripture passage because I got so excited about this message. And I wanted to do it without reading the scripture. Persevering phrase, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9. You guys did a great job reminding me that I messed up. Thank you for that. Here you go. Don't applaud that. <laughs> Unless it was my wife, that's okay. 
Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So here's the thing I want you to get out of the message today that I forgot to tell you that I wanted you to get out a while ago when I went straight to the body. It's this. If you get nothing else out of this message, other than the fact that I messed up, if you get nothing else out of this message, get this. That a believer in Christ, in dealing with the hostile culture, continues through their faith to follow Christ. A believer in Christ, in dealing with the hostile culture, continues in their faith, through their faith, to follow Jesus. And that's the thing that you've really got to see and get from this message today. And and so what what we're dealing with, and what we've talked about so far in this series, we've talked about the fact that we are chosen by God. And we have seen that as followers of Jesus, that in, in times of suffering, it reveals our faith. Suffering reveals our faith. We, we have seen that we are called to be holy. We have seen that we live as examples. And that we suffer because of righteousness. And we suffer also uh, to bring glory to God. And, and so when we talk about today, in, in persevering in faith, one of the important teachings of, of the New Testament that oftentimes gets overlooked. In fact, there are some Christians, some denominations, some churches that actually don't even believe this. But one of the important teachings of our faith is simply this. That once you are saved, you, you persevere in your faith. As Baptists, we like to say that once saved, always saved. In other words, you can never lose your salvation. I mean, Jesus teaches that. I mean, clearly, clearly Christ teaches that. John teaches it. Peter teaches that they, they teach the importance of remembering. Paul teaches that you cannot lose the salvation that you have. God has given this to you. And so when, when, when Peter writes in and he talks about this concept of shepherding and he's alluding back to who Jesus is, he quotes, I mean, you know, he quotes some different things in this passage, but one of the things he does is he alludes back to Jesus as the good shepherd in John chapter 10. So this is what it was going to say when I got way ahead of myself. In 1 Peter 5, 4, it says this, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In other words, Jesus is the chief shepherd, the good shepherd. He's the one that watches over his flock. When he comes, and then Peter talks about the second coming of Christ a lot, you'll receive, you'll receive the crown of glory that is yours. So it's the idea of persevering in that. So in light of all this, in verse 6 and 7, Peter gives what we would call a, a final word of comfort, a final encouragement. He says, therefore, in light of everything that I have given you so far, in light of everything that I have told you in this letter, here's what I want you to do. Humble yourselves, humble yourselves in the mighty hand of God. Now, the idea of humbling is, is the idea of coming low and, and, and being low. And, and here's the thing. What, what, the idea of persecution, of hostility, can bear hard on us. Our tendency might be to fight back. And I've said this a couple times in this series. You, we, we can't do that. And what Peter is saying is here's what you need to do. You need to look at who is absolutely in control. God is. He talks about the mighty hand of God, the power of God. Humble yourselves under that mighty power, that mighty hand of God. And that's, that's what we have to do. Now, the idea of humbling comes from Jesus himself. One of the things that Peter has consistently done in his book is in some ways reference the messages of Jesus. The central message of Jesus, and we did a big study on this way back in um, January on this on a Friday night, one of those deep fries, is the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, what's important for us to realize is that Christ is giving us what he expects of believers. 
if you're going to follow him. And the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he tells us what he expects. At the very beginning, he gives eight characteristics we call Beatitudes, what it is to be a believer. And the third one, he says this, blessed are the gentle. Or some versions, the King James says, blessed are the meek. The idea of one who is gentle is one who is humble, but it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. The picture is actually of a horse, of a stallion that is wild, being brought under control. And so in this hostile culture, we're not weak. We're not powerless. But what we have is a Savior in Jesus Christ, and we have the mighty hand of God. And so what we're to do is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Let him be in control of things. And he tells us one way we can do it. And one way we can do it, he says, is to cast all your anxieties or worries before him. Because he cares for you. Now, the idea of casting is the idea of throwing. And some of you fishermen, you know, you're casting out there. You're throwing that out there. And, and if you play baseball, throwing your baseball. I mean, it's the idea of throwing something. And so what he's saying is take all your anxieties, all your worries, and throw them under the mighty hand of God. Now, the anxieties we face are the anxieties and concerns that are natural to a people who are dealing with hostility. And the idea then is, and don't, don't worry about all these things that are happening to you because of your faith in Christ. Now, worry is natural, right? I mean, we're going to worry. If you know you have a surgery coming up, no matter how small it may be, you're going to worry. And people sometimes say, well, that's just minor surgery. It's not minor if you're having it, is it? Then it's always major surgery. If you have a legal proceeding coming up, you know, that's, that's, that's always going to have some anxiety about that. Now, <laughs> that's the human condition. And so what Peter is saying is, in the area of a culture that's hostile to you, don't let your anxieties get the best of you. You have the power of God. He cares for you deeply. So take your anxieties and cast them under the mighty hand, the power of God. Now, in doing all of that, you can do it because of his great care for you and because of this. Because it says, at the proper time, he will exalt you or he will lift you up. Now, as followers of Jesus, our our main task in life is to honor, glorify, exalt God, lift him up in all his glory. And that is what we do. It's what's expected of us. And here it's saying, basically, that at some point, God will exalt us and lift us up. And, And the idea is something like this. When the time comes, when Christ is glorified in, in, in all his glory, he returns in all his glory. And everything is settled and everything comes that's supposed to come. At that point, the Lord himself will lift us up. From our humility, he will lift us up. And the idea is something like this. We will spend eternity with him in glory, but also, and, I, and personally, I've always kind of liked this part of, uh, uh, of it. It's the idea that all the people that that humiliated us and were hostile to us and all the people that were persecuted and put to death, they will be lifted up in front of all their persecutors and shown they were right. Now, I always like to be proven right. I mean, that's just my nature, you too. But it's not an egotistical thing, okay? It's It's not that egotistical prove me right. It's the idea of that I was right to follow Christ and he's going to be glorified and I was right and correct. In glorifying Jesus. And so that's what we do. And because that we have all this hostility towards us, it doesn't matter because all the anxiety and worry we can put aside in Christ under the power of God, who when he is ready will settle everything. 
So here's the thing. When dealing with a hostile culture, because of your faith in Christ, trust him through the entire process. You can't just trust him part way. Trust him through all of the process. Now, and, and part of that then means this. When, when you're facing hostility and you're facing struggle, you give to him the circumstances of that hostility. If it be something at work, or if it be something at home, or if it be something, you know, among your friendships, those of you going off to college, you'll probably face some hostility there. You take the circumstances and you give them to the Lord. It also means in faith that you take the people that are hostile to you and give them to them as well. So you take the people that are creating the hostility towards you, and you trust God to deal with them. In other words, you just give God all of that. You cast all of that before the Lord. And you're going to need to do it because hostility comes. But he goes from giving the, the, the final comfort, but he also is going to give a, a final warning. And in the end, the warning isn't so much don't do this warning, but a warning of what could happen. And he's preparing us for that. And so he gives a double imperative, a double command in verse 8. He says, be sober, be alert. And some of your versions may have be in control. So the idea of sober is being in control. It's the... It's the word that was used in Greek, the opposite of being drunk. So it's, it's the idea of control of everything that's going on, being aware of everything. And then Peter says, be alert. And so, you know, pay attention to the things that are happening. I remember when I was learning to drive. Uh, and Believe it or not, I actually at one point had to learn to drive. It just didn't come natural to me. But my driving instructor, I remember him always talking about being alert. You know, check your mirrors, check your, check your front mirror, check your rear view mirror, rear view mirror, check your side mirrors. Look around what's happening. If you see a car in an intersection, be aware. Uh, if you see people on the side of the road, you know, they could do anything. And, you know, it's funny, but as the older I get, the more I realize you've got to do that. Especially in New Mexico, you've got to really pay attention. <laughs> now, people do crazy things. They think because they ride a bike and legally they have the road, they can just go wherever they want. It's not a smart move. In front of a guy probably going five times, uh, ten, six, seven, eight times faster than you, you know. Now, just the other day, yesterday, matter of fact, we were going to El Paso, and I'm in the left-hand lane. I am doing what I am obligated to do in the left-hand lane. I am setting the flow of traffic. Do you ever do that? <laughs> Somebody's got to set the flow of traffic. That's my job. So get behind me. We're going. And this 18-wheeler just starts drifting over. And I don't know about you, but nobody drifts over in my lane, 18-wheeler or not. I'm like, God, you're not coming over. I'm ready to take him on. But I'm not that stupid, despite what you may think. And so as alert, you realize you've got to be alert because you can't beat that 18-wheeler. You can try it once. Once. It's like you can jump out of an airplane without a parachute. Once. You can take on an 18-wheeler. Once. So be alert. Why? Because like that 18-wheeler, this is what it says. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, it, it brings the metaphor of a lion. Earlier, I talked about a shepherd. And, and part of that was to set this up. One of the things about sheep is they're defenseless. I mean, sheep cannot fight. Even if sheep fight amongst themselves, they both lose. I mean, sheep can't fight. And so, you know, sheep have predators that come after them, wolves, lions. And, and so the shepherd, part of his job was to protect them from the natural predators. Now, when you think of a lion, you know, don't think of the zoo lion roar from, you know, from the savannah of Africa. This is more like what we have around here, you know, mountain lions, uh, you know, cougars, things like that. And so they would come after them. It was the shepherd's job to protect them from the predator. Now, here's, here's what Peter's saying. It's fascinating. And you, you, Peter has some really interesting 
things in his letter, none of which I have covered till now, but I will cover when we do the deep fry in a couple weeks. And one of them is he deals with this metaphor. He says, your adversary, the adversary is a legal opponent. Um, If you've ever been in a legal situation and you've got attorneys and they've got attorneys and you're looking at this is what you know about attorneys. Whoever is your attorney, he or she, they're great. The other attorney is total scum. Right? I mean, they just thought, and if you're an attorney, you know this, you're not going to get your feelings hurt. You can't. You're like me. You're not going to ever get your feelings hurt about stuff. And that's just the way you look. You look at them as the evil one, the, the, the ones who are trying to do something to harm you. Your adversary, Peter says, is the devil. Now, the word devil comes from the word diabolos. It means the evil one, the slanderer. Remember, throughout this series, I've talked about people who are hostile to the Christian culture slander us. And it comes from the one who was the chief slanderer, the devil. And so we we tend to have two extremes when we deal with the devil. One extreme is to just think it's all mythological, it's not real, all this this thing is the devil. Because we picture in our mind the devil, you probably picture it now, this guy in red, he has horns, he has a tail, he has a pitchfork, he has pointed beard. That's not a picture that comes from scripture, by the way. You got to know that. That comes from Dante's Inferno. If you don't know what Dante's Inferno is, after the service, Google and you can see it. And that's where we get that. Not from scripture. And that's not how he's pictured. The other extreme is to give Satan too much credit, to give the devil Satan too much credit. And to think that, that he has this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present being who's looking at every one of us. And in every given moment, he's dealing with every single person in here. He's not that. Listen, he has powerful, but he doesn't have all power. He can be present, but he can't be present everywhere. He can know a lot of stuff, more than us. He doesn't know everything. He's not the evil equivalent of God. So we get this mindset that there's God and Jesus and Satan's right there with them. No, 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 no. Satan is a created being at best. And, and there's very little actually said about his origins in Scripture. There's some of it that comes from Jewish literature outside of Scripture that probably has some validity. He was a created being, an angel, on par probably with the angel Michael. And he is actually an angel of light and now an angel of deception. The angel of light has become the angel of darkness. And he has rebelled against God. And we experience his rebellion in Genesis chapter 3, when he entices Adam and Eve to sin against God. Because of that, man has now joined Satan, the devil, in rebellion against God. So when we see the devil, it's not that in the hostility that the devil himself is being hostile to me, but that the culture the system, the people connected with him, whose allegiance, whether they know it or not, is to his rebellion against God, that is what we're experiencing. And so what I'm experiencing in this lion, the devil, what I'm experiencing is all the hostility in this rebellion against God. And, now, and here's the thing that happens. We're told, James says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. He says, you resist the devil through the Lord. Peter says the same thing. Peter says this, but resist him. And it says, firm in your faith. The New American Standard Version says, resist him, but resist him firm in your faith. The New International Version says, but resist him standing firm in the faith. And so, there's a little bit of difference. The the original Greek text says, resist him, you resist him, solid or firm in the faith. The New American Standard adds the word your. So it means this, when you resist Satan and all that is connected with him, you're doing it in your faith that you have. The New American Standard, I'm sorry, the New International Version says this, but resist him standing firm. They put the word standing, they add that in the faith, saying that you are standing in the totality of the faith, the teachings, the doctrines of Christ. 
Both of those, by the way, are true. Both of those are totally in agreement with the New Testament found in different places. However, in this particular place, the New American Standard is probably right. What he's saying is you have a personal battle with hostility. You are facing it personally. It is from the hostile forces. It is from that which has aligned itself with Satan. Here's what you must do. You must resist him solid, firm, strong in your personal faith in Christ. That's really what it means. You have this faith in Christ that you can reside in, stay in. Here's the thing. It is through faith that we are saved. It is through faith that we persevere. We are safe through faith. We persevere through faith. By standing firm in Christ. We are able then to have this resistance that exists. We are able then to to have this confrontation with the hostile culture. Not on our own power. But the power that Christ gives us. And so we know that. And so we stand firm. So here's the thing. We can, we can stand firm and we can, we can persevere in our faith. We are saved by our faith and we persevere in our faith. That's what happens. We stand in our faith and we persevere in our faith. That's the battle that goes on. Now, here's the thing. When we, we, we come then in, in to kind of the end of this section of Scripture and what he's kind of, what he's kind of wrapping up, what he, what he says then is this. Know, know this. He says, knowing or having this knowledge that exists knowing that the same suffering you are experiencing, it's being, it's being experienced, it's being accomplished by your brethren in the world. In other words, people, people all over the world are experiencing the same suffering that you are experiencing. And see, this is the hard part for us as Americans, American Christians. See, we're used to never, ever having to experience any suffering as a follower of Christ. For 250, 250 years, more or less, We've not really had hostility as a follower of Jesus. And that's the importance of this whole series coming out of 1 Peter. is the fact that, that we need to realize that what we're experiencing, what's new to us, is normative in Christianity. Because for 2,000 years, most Christians have experienced some degree of suffering. Just we've escaped it. And now we're starting to experience it. And it's hard for us to know really what we're supposed to do with it. And so he says, not that we should be happy that everybody else is experiencing it, but it's not just us. It's not that we're doing something wrong and we're being persecuted. It is what happens to people who are followers of Christ. So here's the thing. The hostility that we face is part of an ongoing battle of rebellion against God. We just take God's side. We're just taking God's side in this. So that's what we need to realize. We're, we're on the side of God. In a rebellion, in a battle that's been going on since Adam and Eve and before that. And so the, the, the important thing for us then is to understand that this battle that's personal to us is because of our connection to Christ. It's because we are connected to Jesus. And this is why it occurs. And then the secret to understanding this and to realize is that when all is said and done, it's really about faith. Now, see, when, when you come to First Peter, what you're coming to is a book that says when all, everything happens, understand your life, your salvation is because of faith. 
Let's tell you this. If you read the New Testament in its entirety, and the one thing from the human perspective that becomes relevant over and over and over again is that we have to have faith. Now, the faith comes from Christ. He gives it to us. But we have to have faith. Faith saves us, and faith sustains us. We persevere in faith. So the real question is whether or not you have faith. Have you taken life? And this is what faith is. Faith is trusting. It's believing. Those words are all synonymous. It's just taking your life and it's giving it to Jesus. It's to renounce your sin. It's to, it's to say, I've got to quit rebelling against God. I've got to quit going in that direction. And I'm going to take my life and I'm just going to give it to Christ. And when I give it to Christ, then I'm saying, what is it that you expect of me? And here's the, here's the thing. This is what Christ expects of us. He expects us to honor God in everything we do and bring people to Jesus. And he says, in doing that, here's what may happen. You may suffer. Now, that doesn't make sense to us. But it doesn't matter if it makes sense to us. It's just reality. See, there's a world in opposition to God. And if the world is in opposition to God and we're not... Well, the world's going to be hostile to us. But in that hostility, we can still honor God. And in that hostility, as crazy as it may sound, we can still help people come to Jesus. Because that's what's needed. That's what it takes. So being a believer in a non-believing culture requires a commitment to Jesus That surpasses any commitment anyone has who's not a follower of Christ. And Peter says, understand this. You who are being persecuted, you were chosen by God. He chose you. In choosing you, he gave you a life born again into a living hope. So that the testing of your faith, what it does is it reveals your faith. Suffering reveals your faith. Here's what I want you to do. He says, I want you to be holy, set apart. Because that's how God is. In doing so, you will serve as living examples to the world that is hostile to you. And your suffering is because of righteousness with Christ. And your suffering will bring glory to God. So here's what you need to be aware of. You need to be aware that you must persevere in your faith. That's First Peter. As a believer and a follower of Jesus in a hostile culture, remember this. We are chosen by God to have faith. So have faith. Have faith in Christ. Some of you today have never trusted Christ. You've never experienced that faith. You can do that today. Even while I speak to you, you can just say, I'm going to take my life. I want to trust Christ with my life. I've never done that. And I want to take my life and I want to quit being in rebellion against God. And I want to live and trust Christ as my Savior. So Christ, I'm going to give my life to you. There's nothing magical about it. There's no set formula. You just take your life and give it to Jesus. Say, I'm trusting you to save me. He'll save you forever. 
And if you need to do that, you can do that right now. You can do that in just a moment. We'll have some, some people standing up here. You can come and, and say, I want to trust Christ. So I need to know how to trust Christ. We'll help you with that. Some of you who are believers, you're facing hostility. So you need to take all that anxiety and worry that you have, and you just need to say, Lord, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to trust you with all of it. And whatever happens, happens. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to glorify you every step of the way. And I'm going to do everything I can to help people come to Jesus. And see, that's what all of us have to do. If you're a follower of Christ, your commitment needs to be, God, I'm going to bring you glory and honor. And I'm going to help people come to Jesus. Maybe you want to come and, and pray with someone, and we'll, help, we'll pray with you. We'll help you through that process. Or maybe you, you want to pray for somebody, or you want to come join our church. You could do those things. And this is the thing that matters as we bring this series to a close. When all is said and done, walk out of here today having faith. Faith in Jesus that saves you and sustains you in a culture that is hostile towards you. So, Father, we thank you that you love us, that you care for us, and that you save us. And, Lord, we come to you and ask that you forgive us of sin and forgive us of failure and help us give our life completely to Jesus. I know the culture is hostile. And I know the culture works against us. But the most important thing, Father, isn't what we're experiencing. The most important thing is our faith in you. That we honor you and we help people call Jesus. So now in these moments of our invitation, it is our prayer that we cast all our anxieties before you. Give all of our hostility we face to you. And ask you in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, give us the faith we need to love you, serve you, and have a life with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We'll be here at the front to greet you.